Alright, so we're looking tonight at, so this is the first of uh, this series I'm going to do on, that are called Knowing Right from Wrong, five talks on moral theology, um, and these are all talks that are given elsewhere, and I realise actually I've not talked about moral theology here in this parish, so that's what I'm going to aim to do with these five talks. Um, and tonight I want to kind of look a little historically at the question, really, what changed at Vatican II? So I've called this post-Vatican II morality. Um, and anyone who lived through that era will have known there was lots of change. Um, and we're going to go from legalism through chaos, aiming towards virtue. Um, and if you're wondering, that's a picture of the bishops at the Second Vatican Council there, all gathered. So, here's an image of what morality was like before the council. So, here we have a nun with a ruler. Um, and if we were to sum up, in a sense, what morality, the vision of it was like before the council, then that tagline, keeping you in line, would be probably a fairly good summary. Um, now, I had a, a nun, I always want to show this, so I feel I need to give a slight disclaimer that I was... I did very well by nuns in primary school, but I did get beaten quite a bit with a ruler, but they taught me a great deal. Um, and I probably did need a little bit of correcting. But that vision of discipline, the ruler, in a sense sums up a lot of what people experienced as their experience of the church before the council and their experience of the moral life. That it was there, it had a purpose, but it was very hard. What's morality like after the council? Um, well, here we have an image of a hippie, uh, and the tagline there, anything goes. Uh, and there was, in a sense, quite rapidly a contrary spirit at work um, throughout the church, in which lots of people were running around saying, pretty much worse the effect of, well, whatever you want. Um, so from one extreme to another. Well, where are we now in the year 2015? Well, we're certainly in a very different place. And what I want to introduce you to tonight, um, among other things, is part of a renewal that's going on in moral theology and has been for some decades, focusing on the question of virtue. So not on the question of law, but a different focal point, virtue. And that's only, in a sense, a renewal happening in small pockets, um, but there is a renewal going on. So the foundation of moral theology in a different perspective um, looks at the question of what we are seeking. So we've got an image there of somebody reaching, reaching for the sun. And there is within all of us an inner yearning, an inner reaching for something. And ultimately, that something is God, even when people don't know it. But starting by looking at human action um, and that dynamic within us puts us a very different focus from starting at the law. So, I want to ask the question, why is something good? So in morals, we talk about good things and bad things. Well, what do we mean when we say something is 
goods? Well, one way of answering that question, here's sister again, is because I say so. Um, and that is one way of answering the question. You know, when you're very small and you ask why, um, you can get the answer because I say so. Um, and there was a presentation of the moral life before the council that tended to say that to a lot of questions. Why the church says so, end of discussion. Um, and in that model, the dominant paradigm is obedience and keeping the law, doing what we're told and keeping to the rules. Now there's another starting point, and that's to say why is something good? Well, it's good because it fulfills its purpose. So we've got an image there of a railway track. It's heading to a destination. And in this starting point, the dominant paradigms are fulfillment or perversion. Fulfillment if you are in your de uh, getting to the destination. Perversion if you turned away from it. So, let me focus that with these two questions here. Is something good because God says so, or does God say so because it's good? And that's, this question here gives an example of that. Can God command you to hate him? So William of Ockham, who lived in the medieval period, uh, he considered this question and he said, if God commanded you to hate him, then that would then become good, because God says so. So there you have a, a vision that is completely command-obedience-centered. It's not looking at the nature of a thing, the purpose of a thing. It's just saying, what have I been told? What have I been commanded? What does obedience require? Now, the orthodox position actually is to say a step further and say, well, no, God does say things, he does command things, but he commands them because they are good. He commands them for a reason. And we can see that reason in other things he has said and shown and in the pattern of creation. back to this question, if you think this is what morality is all about, that God can command you to hate him, then it is all about obedience. And sister with the ruler, because I say so, is your dominant paradigm. I want to outline three stages in an argument in terms of thinking what do we mean in a more orthodox sense when we say something is good. First I want to talk about what a good thing just in general, a thing. Then a good act. When I look at some actions, some behavior, what do I mean when I say an action is good? And then in a sense what we're really concerned about, a person. If I say that person is good and that person is bad, what do I mean? So, three stages I'm going to work through. First, to consider the question, a good thing. So here's an image of a watch. Well, 
How do I know whether that's a good watch or a bad watch? It's a question very simply of whether it does what it's supposed to do, whether it fulfills its purpose. So if that watch um, is very beautiful, but it doesn't tell the time, then it's not a good watch. It might be a good piece of jewellery, if all you want actually is something decorative underneath it, but it wouldn't be a good watch. So when we're asking, when we're saying something is good, we need to know what its purpose is, what more technically we'd say its end is. Are you all with me so far? That's a fairly obvious thing. What about an action, some activity? What does it mean to say that's a good act? So here we have somebody eating. Well, again, we need to ask the question, what is the purpose of the activity? So you know whether the watch is good by knowing what the watch's purpose is to tell the time. Well, how is that activity to be judged, good or bad? Well, you need to know what the purpose of eating is. You probably want to know uh, the nutrition content of this, yes? Um, does that actually serve the purpose of eating? Because in our modern world, most people would probably think the purpose of eating is pleasure. But actually the purpose of eating has a much uh, more foundational purpose. It's about nourishment. It's about human well-being at a bodily level. So the nourishment or not in that hamburger would be one of the ways of assessing whether that is a good action. You'd probably also want to know how big the hamburger is. So if, if he's eating so much that he is bloated and fat, well that's not the purpose of eating. It's exceeded the proper measure of eating. So in any activity, we need to know what it's purposes, its end is, its function is. And when we know the function of that activity, we're able to say whether that activity is, in this particular case, good or bad. <coughs> so two um, images we can take for that um, would be obviously eating here, and the a bad act of eating would be gluttonous. Um, oh, it changed itself. Um, <laughs> another example, um, we could consider the example of sexual intercourse. Um, so promiscuous sex is obviously going to be contrary to its purpose. And I'll put a picture for that one, um, for obvious reasons. Um, so the purpose of sex, you know, we don't need to get too technical to realise it is a personal act, it's a loving act, it speaks of commitment. Casual, promiscuous sex is contrary to the purpose of sexual intercourse. It wouldn't therefore be a good act. It's not what the function of that activity is about. And so in my daily life,
In my daily life, I have lots of different activities that make up my daily living. Each of those activities has a function, a purpose. The, the making of my lunch, the writing of an essay, um, the preparing of a sermon, the going to visit somebody who's sick. Um, each of those activities, I can look at what their purpose is, and I can examine whether I've done it well or not by considering its purpose and function. And in the moral life, this is what we mean when we say an act is good. It's achieving its end, achieving its function. So, here we have not a good thing, not a good action, but a good person. But what do I mean by a good person? I mean someone who has achieved her end, her goal, her function. And ultimately, as a Christian, we in a sense leap to the conclusion and say her goal is to be with God, to have a union in God, to be holy. All the different activities within her life would need to be part of, kind of funneled towards, oriented towards, interrelating towards the final end of union in God. And that's what we would mean when we say a person is good. The person is achieving their function. So to take a step back a second and summarize the, those three steps, um, and note in a sense what I'm presupposing here. I'm presupposing that there are said, inbuilt purposes in human activity. Now, most people today in our world think that you're free to be whatever you want to be. You're free to define your own purpose. Any activity you do is up to you to decide what you think is the right and wrong way to do it. Well, our Christian vision has a different starting point, namely in creation. And because we believe in creation, we believe that our activities have a purpose that was built into them in the same way that the watchmaker built a purpose into the watch. So you know the purpose of the watch by knowing the watchmaker. And we know the purpose of a human being by knowing the mind of God. So think of that in terms of the account of creation. So that's an image of the Garden of Eden, in case you wondered what Eden looked like. Um, or think of just at the level of the cosmos, that there is a creator, there is a purpose, um, and that that is built into human activity. So part of moral analysis is seeking to discern within human activity what the purpose is that the creator has put there. Here, uh, no one's going to tell me how to live my life. That's pretty much uh, our modern tagline. But if you say that, um, there's going to be, I said, no fulfillment unless there's an inbuilt purpose. People like to talk about fulfillment, and yet you can't talk about fulfillment unless there's a goal. If you just make it up for yourself, actually, you've kind of lost part of the very notion of what fulfillment is. 
Okay, so I had that image of Mother Teresa. I had that image of Mother Teresa, and I said she had achieved her end. Well, what is the human end? What is the human function? Because in a sense it doesn't quite sound right to use the word function of a human being. We're kind of more than just a function. Well, um, Aristotle, even before Christ came along, he said, nonetheless, we can look at human behavior and see certain things in common with all human beings that actually point to the fact that there is a function within us. And he said very simply that the human end is happiness. Um, so Aristotle looked at this before Christ, but um, Augustine, um, if you've read his Confessions, he analyzes this at great length when he looks at his own life and he looks at all the things he was seeking for long before he decided to turn to God. And he said everything he was seeking, he was actually seeking happiness. And he says people disagree about all kinds of things, but everybody wants to be happy. He says people disagree what they think happiness is, People disagree where they think they will find happiness, but everybody wants to be happy. Sometimes I have a clever seminarian who will try and give me a counterexample to this in terms of um, being miserable, but when you're in a bad mood and you just want to be in a bad mood. Um, what? <laughs> Temporary, but I think even then, wallowing in your own misery is a kind of perverse pleasure. That when you're wallowing in, you know, I'm so fed up, I'm just going to wallow in my misery. I've set a very low standard of happiness, but I'm somehow enjoying doing it. Um, that, that even in that, there is a quest for happiness. I just don't, at that moment, seem to realize there's any more any deeper happiness to be found. So St. Augustine says, everybody wants to be happy. Everybody wants joy. So they disagree on what happiness is. They disagree on where they're going to find it. But this is what everybody wants. Aristotle twists it um, slightly more. He thinks about a final end. He says, people want money thinking that if they have that, they'll be happy. They want a wife, thinking if they have that, then they'll be happy. Nobody wants happiness in order to then have something else. That happiness is the final goal. This is what everybody's aiming at. And when we reach after various good things, thinking they'll make us happy, there is, St. Thomas analyzes, there must be some good that sums up all good, that gives all happiness, that this is what we are yearning for, that there is this never quite satisfied quest for a more complete happiness. And the only 
one who could give this complete happiness has to be a comprehensive good, a good that includes all other good. And this is God. So that this quest for happiness that we can see in all human beings is actually a quest for God. Even though we don't realize it, um, certainly not to begin with. G.K. Chesterton famously put it this way, he said, the young man knocking on the brothel door is looking for God. He doesn't know it, but even in doing something very wicked, he's seeking happiness, but just in the wrong place. He's looking for God. depends on what you think happiness is um, and there are lots of notions of happiness in which well why did you think happiness and truth weren't think right well Emmanuel Kant would have said something very similar notion of happiness that equates happiness with pleasure and with something transitory and cheap will tend to think that that happiness has to be put aside in order to be a decent person. A notion of happiness that sees it instead as the what comes with the possession of God, then actually that is the same as the quest for truth. And true truth and true happiness, true joy, together. Knowing what true happiness is, is um, a really foundational thing in, in the quest of knowing what goodness is. Um, the happiness isn't just pleasure. Um, one way of looking at it is whether you can share it. So, um, pleasure uh, Aristotle says, comes when you come in contact with something. So I have a chocolate cookie, and the contact with it gives me pleasure. If I give you half of the cookie, I end up only having half the pleasure, because I have only half the contact. Pleasure, if you share it out, you get less. Joy, however, is different. Joy is a spiritual thing, not a physical thing. And actually, when we share joy with other people, our own joy increases. So the kind of happiness we're talking about here isn't physical pleasure, it's a spiritual joy. And so seeking it isn't selfish, isn't opposed to truth, it's actually the very seeking of God. And so the proper Latin word for happiness would be beatitude, as a possession of God himself. Um, 
So coming back to the image of the watch, the good watch, a watch that achieves its function. Well, a human being is a good human if he achieves his function, his end, namely happiness. And so we judge a human person, I've said there, judged good with respect to achieving this end or not. So, it's often said that joy is the sign of a saint. Um, now, if we think joy is something selfish and about pleasure, then this seems like a contradiction. If we realize joy is a spiritual reality that comes with the possession of God, then we realize actually joy is a sign that someone is a saint. The quotation from St. Josemaria um, says, To be happy... What you need is not an easy life, but a life, a heart which is in love. And that a man who has love in his heart is a man with joy. And love is not a selfish thing. So joy as the measure of a successful person. Let's wind all that thought back and think back about the law. Um, so you read the Ten Commandments. Um, so God has given us the Ten Commandments. So in all this talk about joy and happiness, um, I can't be saying that what God has given us is somehow wrong or somehow to be jettisoned. Where does the law fit? Well, the vision of life being defined by law-keeping is to be found in many places. In Islam, um, the word means submission. Uh, so their dominant paradigm would be to submit, to obey. In the history of philosophy, um, we can link that with what's called nominalism. It says philosophically that there's no natures, only obedience, and that, as I said earlier, God can command you to hate there's no such thing as an inbuilt pers uh, purpose of a thing, not even an inbuilt nature of God. Where scripture says God is love. Well, according to Islam, he can choose to be, he is all-powerful, he is almighty. That's all that is. And Protestantism um, says if you obey scripture, you don't obey reason. Um, you obey the Ten Commandments, not what Catholics would call the natural law. With the Protestant Reformation, we had a huge shift to an uh, obedience-structured vision of the moral life. Uh, and oddly, even though the Catholic Counter-Reformation reacted against that, in many ways it reacted against it by using the same categories. And so our apologetics launched into defending laws, defending obedience, but just a different set of laws and obedience to different things. Now, if we ask the question, is law the purpose of life, then I think it's pretty obvious the answer is going to be no. And yet often we can, particularly as Christians in a very relativistic world, can be so concerned about defending what's right and wrong that we can end up talking or giving the impression that the law is the purpose of everything. And when I read, uh, as a moral theologian, the old books of moral theology from before the Second Vatican Council, um, 
they had vast volumes, um, what were called the manuals, that compiled together the wisdom of the preceding centuries, but very legal in its focus, and all kinds of detail telling you what you must do. You must do this with respect to this. You must do that with respect to that. Um, now, what vision does that actually give us? Well, the analogy I use with a skeleton. A skeleton without a body. Um, and in many ways, I think this was the presentation of the moral life before Vatican II. Now, you want a skeleton. If I didn't have a skeleton, I'd be in a pretty bad way. Um, but if you were to look at me and say, well, if you were to look at this and say, here we have a perfectly healthy person, some great bones in there, wonderful <laughs> calcium deposit, um, that isn't a healthy person. Thank you. Dry bones. Dry bones, yes. Isn't it? Isn't it? If you have a body without a skeleton, you get the opposite <laughs> So a lot of modern philosophy, for some centuries now, has made freedom the focus to such an absolute degree that freedom is spoken of as if it was the purpose of everything. But this also fails us that it's like having a body without a skeleton. So what we want is... Yes. <laughs> I think I say that for my <laughs> um, Arnold Schwarzenegger there. Um, the perfect combination. Um, so a body with a skeleton. Now, of course, we might note that um, he actually isn't quite the perfect human being. Um, He's taken physical beauty as an end to be pursued in itself. Um, well, he presumably does. And people pay a lot of money um, to try and look like that. So, um, so I'm not quite saying that is perfection, but you get the notion. Yeah? So. And renewal in moral theology is talked about instead is the question of virtue. Now, virtue still needs the law, and the image used by uh, Chapacola called Pinkes is the law as a tutor. And St. Paul uses this image also in the scriptures. He talks about the law as the tutor that brings us to Christ. Now, sister was my tutor in primary school. She taught me many things, and I needed to. I needed somebody to teach me not to hit my sister. This wasn't self-evident to me. Someone had to teach me. It had to be drummed into me sometimes quite <laughs> emphatically. Um, virtue needs the law to teach us. So as I said there, law is the tutor bringing us to Christ. Um, teaching us what it means to be good. As Catholics, we hold that the moral law is found, um, I'm going to talk more about this <coughs> in later uh, sessions, 
in three places. We can find it in human reason. We can find it, therefore, in what's called the natural law. It's natural in that it's kind of out there. You don't need the Bible. But we can also find it in what we call supernatural revelation. So, in the fullness in Jesus Christ. But we do say as Catholics that reason, human reason, is able to know right and wrong, able to know the moral law. And I think that's week three. I'm going to look at that in more detail. So there's an image of a ruler. Um, and a, well, at the top of that slide, post-Vatican II mistakes. Well, its sister before the council was kind of over-enthusiastic with drumming the law into me with the ruler. Well, after the council, we had lots of people saying, in effect, that they didn't need a ruler at all. Um, or it was going to be up to them to decide what was the ruler, what was going to be right and wrong. The, the conscience many people talked about in a way that made it absolute, as if there was no objective truth, that it's up to me to decide how I'm going to measure right and wrong. And what that does is it means you end up with no direction, no purpose, no fulfillment. That you need the measure. And a measure comes from outside of you. You don't create your own measure. The ruler cannot measure itself. Something has to first measure the measure so that it can then be used measuring other things. And this means we need to look outside of ourselves. We need to look to Christ. We need to look to his church. All right, a final issue I want to, to look at. Um, it's a question of the passions. Now, in old moral theology... Passions would always be spoken of as a bad thing. Um, and many of our prayers speak about the passions as things to be resisted, things that we fight against. And there is a sense in which that is true because of the fall, because of original sin. That I inherit my human nature, not in its original perfect state, but in a fallen state, so that my passions are all warring with each other, and warring with me, and as St. Paul puts it, warring with my will, that I know the right thing, but I do the wrong thing, and it's my passions disordered within me, pulling me the wrong way. But the more ancient concept of passions in our Catholic faith says that actually the passions in themselves are good. The passions in themselves pull me towards things that look good. But because of original sin, because of concupiscence, they'll pull me in the wrong way. So what I need to do is I need to retrain, rediscipline my passions, and this is what virtue is. So that the virtuous man has by training, by repetition, reformed his passions so that they reach for the right thing in the right way. Now I have an image here. Now the hand, as you can see, is reaching for the donuts, not for the carrots. 
and that's most certainly what my passions would move me towards. Um, carrots are also good, but they're somehow not as attractive as the donut. They don't promise <laughs> the same type of pleasure as the donut. Um, however, However, um, let's see, the thing about passions and action is we can, um, when we talk about virtue, we talk about habituation. We can habituate our patterns of behavior. So if every morning I wake up and for breakfast I have three donuts, first morning I do that, I'll probably feel a little sick. Um, sick. Three donuts for breakfast. Second morning, it'll look a little more normal to me. Third morning, after three months of having three donuts for breakfast every day, <laughs> well, I will just automatically measure out three. It will look reasonable to me. Um, by habit, we make our minds our thinking patterns and our passions, the level of our body and our emotions, reach instinctively for what we have trained ourselves to reach for. Conversely, if I never have a donut, or if I only have a donut, let's say, once a month, that I have, by my repetition, trained myself to feel that a donut is a very rare thing, then within me, there's just going to be an, a habit. A habit that isn't just an external mechanical thing, but something within my passion at a bodily level, that I will reach for them in a much more measured way, according <coughs> to how repeated action has formed myself. The vegetables. If I never eat vegetables, it will feel normal to me to never eat vegetables. If every day I always have five a day of my fruit and veg, then to go a day without that will feel not quite right. I will have habituated my behavior so that it just seems right to me. It feels normal to me to have what I always have. I always have five vegetables. And if I somehow go a whole day without any, at a bodily dimension, there will be something kind of reminding, prodding me, I've not had my vegetables. Now what the virtuous life does is in every single sphere of activity, in that particular activity, by repeating the right thing by the right measure, in the right way, I habituate myself to seek the right thing. And so as the Catechism says, it becomes easy to do the right thing, it becomes difficult to do the wrong thing. Because doing the wrong thing is going against a habitus within. And so this is what makes virtue so attractive, so desirable. Doing the right thing the first time is tough, 
doing it the second time is a little tough, but after many times, ease and joy come with possession of virtue. So passions and virtue. The passions can mislead us, or they can be formed by the repetition of good acts, which gives us virtue. <coughs> virtue is defined as a stable disposition to the good. So it doesn't just come and go, it's by repetition becomes stable within me. And with that, the passions have been trained, formed, to direct us to our proper end. Okay, to summarise all that, said post-Rathian to morality, we went from legalism through a period of utter chaos, um, and in many places there's a new paradigm now being used to study the moral life, the notion of virtue. Before, we had sister, defining good by what I tell you, good is what I say, a focus on the law as an image of the moral life, like an empty skeleton. Afterwards, we just had pure chaos. We had a body without a skeleton. Um, and what we want is to recognize our, our inbuilt seeking for God, following our inbuilt purposes, and having both a body and a skeleton. All right.